0: Welcome to episode 61 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf, Associate Editor of Country and
1: Townhouse Magazine. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than Culture Editor at Country and Townhouse Magazine. We're delighted this podcast is brought to you with the support of our sponsor, Coots, who have a long experience helping high-net-worth clients navigate the complex property market. The team at Coots will really go that extra mile to understand your lifestyle, and the complexities of your financial situation. They hold your hand throughout the whole process, taking away much of the stress to see if they can find a bespoke solution tailored to you.
0: Well, that sounds exactly what I need as I'm definitely gonna need my hand holding when I have to move later this year. But there are lots of people too, who don't have to move, but, with the pandemic still uncertain, might be considering purchasing the dream home away from home, whether that's for staycations, family weekends, or just a future investment. Coots could be the perfect partner to help you take the next step. Visit coots.com to discover more. We are absolutely honoured and thrilled that our first guest today has become a household name and burst into our collective consciousness when she won the 2019 Booker Prize with Margaret Atwood for her eighth book, Girl, Woman, Other. I absolutely loved it. And I'm in very good company as Barack Obama loved it too and said it was one of his favourite books of that year. I am, of course, talking about Bernardino Veristo. OBE now, who was the first black woman ever to win the Booker Prize. She's also the first black person to be president of the Royal Society of Literature since its inception in 1820, a role she's recently taken up. She's been absolutely tireless in promoting the work of other brilliant black writers and she's here to talk about her latest venture doing just that today. We couldn't be more delighted to have her with us. Good morning, Bernadine.
1: Hello, good to be talking to you. Lovely to have you on our podcast, Bernadine, and we are, as Charlotte said, honoured to have you. We're here to talk about the exciting new initiative that you're spearheading with Penguin, Black Britain Writing Back, in which you're curating and writing the introductions for a series of non-fiction books written by Black writers. The aim isn't just to bring these writers back into circulation and reintroduce their work to readers, but also to help reconfigure Black British literary history. Can you start by telling our listeners how the idea came about, and also about some of the...
2: It actually began after I won the Booker Prize and my publisher and I were sitting down having lunch and he said, I've got an idea. Why don't we bring some books back into circulation that you want to bring back? And I thought that's an amazing idea. I jumped at it and I, I've been talking about Black British literature for a very long time and the fact that a lot of, well, not a lot, but quite a lot of, quite a few writers have come and gone and everybody forgets that they even existed, that they aren't, they're not, they don't form part of the canon and they just disappear. And some of these books are great books. So we decided that we would publish six novels to begin with, and we did that in February 2021, With this new series of books that are coming out, we have um, a book called A Black Boy at Eton. It was originally called A N Word at Eton when it was first published in 1972. And it's by a writer called Dilibi Onyema, and he was the first black boy to graduate from Eton. There was another Nigerian boy who was just before him, but he didn't graduate. And it's about his time at the college, and it's, um, it's so well written. He was, I think he was about 20 when I wrote it. He Sorry, 20 when he wrote it. It's so well written, and it's also, as you can expect, quite shocking. He was there in the 60s and uh, really, really, really excited um, that a whole generation of readers are going to be encountering this book. Uh, We also have a book called Growing Out, Black Hair and Black Pride in the Swinging 60s by somebody called Barbara Blake Hannah, And this was a book uh, which she wrote in the early 80s about her time in London in the 1960s. And she is a Jamaican woman. She came to Britain with a film company, and she ended up being Britain's first black reporter. But she was hounded wow. out of the job because people objected to a black woman on television. She eventually went back to Jamaica and became a Rasta and a politician and a cultural producer and activist. Uh, We also have a book called Sequins for a Ragged Hem, which was originally published in the 80s by a writer called Admiral Johnson. Admiral Johnson died about 30 years ago and she was quite well known as a poet. She was from Trinidad and this is a kind of Travelogue about her going back to Trinidad after a long absence and travelling around the Caribbean. So we're seeing the Caribbean through her eyes, and that's really interesting because often, sort of historically, travelogues. Um, have been the preserve of white men traveling to exotic places and describing them. Um, the penultimate <laughs> book is Britain's Through Negro Spectacles by ABC Merriman Labour. And this was published in 1909 by a Sierra Leonean man who came to Britain around that time. And he came to study law. Uh, he worked as a teacher he had various jobs he was a really interesting figure um, because he came from a kind of middle-class background and had a sort of middle-class life here in Britain at the turn of the century and that's really unusual and he he set up these lecture t- tours of himself traveling around Africa and talking about Britain and he then turned his lectures into this book and it's a satire And it's completely audacious and bold. (laughs) You would never think it was published over 100 years ago. And he paid the price when it was published. He was damned and it was trashed and it disappeared. And he ended his life, you know, in penury. But it is, it's a a really interesting book. And I'm, I'm really excited about this because it is a book that is so old, but in some ways feels so fresh and in some ways also so relevant. And then the fifth book is My Father's Daughter, by Hannah Azeb Poole, who for a long time was a Guardian journalist and she was adopted as a child. She was born in 1974 in Eritrea and she eventually, many decades later, goes back to Eritrea to reconnect to um, her family. She meets her father, her mother's um, passed on and she meets siblings and a huge extended family and she takes us through it moment for, by moment and we really feel for her having grown up you know in a very loving white family meeting her african family and having so many sort of conflicting feelings around it so these are the books i've read that one my father's daughter and i was absolutely
0: gripped i mean partly because i spend a lot of time in Ethiopian eritrea but the way she writes about it is it just keeps you on the edge of your seat i mean it 's fantastically good read, um, but i 'd love to know what's happened to her now, because that was published in tooth I was shocked to see that that was published in two thousand and five, and God i'd have loved reading it then had I just never came across it so i'm um, thank, thank you thank yeah. <laughs> you.
2: That's partly why we're bringing it back you know because because it kind of sunk without trace uh and, and that happened to a lot of books uh hannah is now running the bernie grant art center and yeah hopefully with this book being reissued and and this is the most recent book there'll be other books from her i mean uh, th- this is happening with the first set of books uh they are now publishing other books um since uh, their reissue of their of their first books and that's really great with the first set of books, I think they did very well in terms of sales. That was very reassuring. I, there wasn't a lot of coverage in the media. There was some. With this set of books, there is a lot more interest. Also because Barbara Blake Hanna's story is so fascinating. And until about a year ago, when people kind of rediscovered her, nobody had heard of her. And yet she was the mm. first black British reporter all those years ago and um, was very successful at the job until until people complained and, and that was it. Um, and then with the black boy, Eaton, there's a lot of interest in that and he's still around. He's a publisher in Nigeria. He went back to Nigeria, he's been there decades and they're both very interesting powerful personalities and so I know for a fact that there's going to be a lot of coverage of those two books in particular but you know the publishing industry is changing they've awakened to the fact that um there are so many communities that haven't been represented in literature mm. and that there are mm. th- this is a really heterogeneous society you know we're, we're made up of people from all over the place and we're all classes and genders and races and cultures and sexual and that should be reflected in the literature that we publish and that is starting to happen and that's very um yeah makes me feel hopeful i've been an activist in this regard for a couple of decades and so have other people and we have on the whole been ignored but not anymore Mm. and i think i think (laughs) the industry realizes that it has to get its house in order and that it also that it doesn't it shouldn't have to rely on people like me and other people saying look this isn't fair this isn't right you've got to be more inclusive they are now taking that on board themselves and that is a very good thing
0: can we talk a bit about you now bernardine because obviously winning the booker was absolutely momentous. And we had Ben Okri on the podcast recently, who famously talked about how his short walk up to the podium to get the prize was the walk into another life. Obviously, you know, winning the book is life-changing, but you've made such amazing use of it, not just to keep publishing your own work, but, you know, most recently with Manifesto, obviously, but promoting other Black writers. But um, I'm wondering... What you're writing now.
2: Oh, uh, you know, I, I actually published three books last year. Can you believe it? So I've published Manifesto. I've published a book called Feminism, which um, I'll just briefly tell you what it is. It's a short book and it's part of a series that Tate galleries are publishing called the Look Again series. And uh, Tate Britain has a major rehang happening in 2023. And they, they've they asked 12 writers who are not art writers to write about the rehang and art from particular perspectives and I Ooh. so class gender empire race I think fashion's coming up and all kinds of other angles on it so I chose feminism and it is a short book it's actually four thousand words but it's a lovely little book with with photographs and um yeah that that was published a couple of months ago and I also had a an art book out with Valentino the fashion house but anyway apart from that um I have a couple of projects in the pipeline but unfortunately I can't talk about them um but I (laughs) will be yeah Uh, One of them is for theatre, actually, and um, also another novel will be in the works um, this year because I've had an
1: incredibly busy two years and I just
2: need some dream time,
1: I think, in order to write a novel. Mm. I mean, it's really interesting, the point about Tate. I mean, um, the whole what is happening in in our politics at the moment in terms of the kind of culture wars. It was interesting, for example, I was very supportive of what Tate had done with Hogarth, uh, with kind of contemporary writers reinterpreting Hogarth's pictures, but oh, it, it bizarrely seems to offend a lot of people. Obviously, the Colston verdict was amazing. I just wondered what your thought is on all this extraordinary culture war that we've now landed ourselves in the middle of. I find it, uh,
2: I find it really worrying, actually, that as some elements of our society are so reactionary. I mean, the whole point of history is that we should interrogate it. We need to revisit it from our 21st century perspective and so that means sometimes we need to 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 place a different kind of value on work it's the same with the sculpture sculptor isn't it eric gill for example when Mm i when i look at Mm. uh, when i look at those um statues outside broadcasting house they look like the work of a paedophile now sorry to say but they do (laughs) uh it's really shocking Mm. and so um And people say, well, you should divorce the art from the artist. But actually, in this case, I think, because we, we know the history of the man... It's very hard to divorce the art from the artist. I think we should always have these conversations and we need to keep these conversations alive. I'm all for the Colstone statue and similar statues not being around. I am all for them being in museums and um, recontextualized in museums. I don't think that is dishonouring our history. I think that is investigating history and finding a new way to create a national identity. And I think it's it's ridiculous to think that our national identity is somehow being damaged by the fact that we are choosing to reevaluate how history has been made and portrayed in the past. I, I fear for our society because we just seem to be so divided at the moment in so many ways, and it's not helped by certain leading figures stoking the flames. So yeah, that's what well, I think what, what's
0: great about you, Bundy, is as you say, you know, you're up for the conversation. I mean, the, the, the problem I see is, is a lot of people won't
2: have the conversation. They, they will just leave the room or cancel you before you get a chance to have it. Uh, I'm not even sure if I buy into this idea of, of people being cancelled unless they are literally cancelled. You know, obviously, there are a lot of people who gain their power from social media. I'm not talking about Trump. I'm talking about just just regular people who do not have a public platform. Yeah. Um, but there is there is a danger to that at the same time. And the people who do have the power, the institutions, the media, and so on, they are cancelling people all the time as well. The people who they do not choose mm. to represent, who they do not feature in their pages, whose points of view they do ignore. It's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? And I think, I, I was saying to somebody the other day, I think we need to go back to having conferences. <laughs> When I was in my twenties, <laughs> I would go to feminist conferences and yeah, we would have a bit of an argy-bargy, but we would know who we were talking to. They were literally yeah. sitting next to us or in front of us. They weren't in disguise. Yeah. They didn't have a mask over their head. They weren't anonymous and uh, we would thrash things out and yes. we would go away and we would learn from the experience and develop as human beings. Uh, whereas yeah. now it's like the sound bites on social media. And so yeah, bring back conferences and debates and discussions. I agree, one hundred percent. Ed, you
0: want you really want to talk to Bernadine as you were there a bit more about the Booker, didn't you?
1: I felt pretty angry on your behalf, actually. I thought it was a big moment in uh, literary history, and I thought that Margaret Atwood, brilliant writer though she is, it was kind of like she was getting a lifetime achievement award, and she was sharing the limelight with you, and I thought. You both handled it with incredible grace. But I have to say, as a punter, I was pretty angry.
2: Well, I don't think you were alone there. But <laughs> <laughs> I still hear this. But from my, all I can say is, you know, I, I I'm. An, you could probably guess I'm an incredibly diplomatic person. <laughs> I, I've learned to be an incredibly diplomatic person. As the person who is the recipient of the prize, who was the recipient of the prize, it was a great thing for me. And I don't regret it at all i don't regret sharing it i have huge respect for margaret atwood and it is what it is and that's all i've got to say i bet she was a bit embarrassed well she gave me the podium didn't she she handed mm, yes. it over to me yeah. really lovely generous gesture
1: mm. yeah I've got the pictures on my iPhone.
2: I mean, I loved what, what Ben
0: Ockley said about it being a walk into a different life. I mean, is that how it felt?
2: Uh, it did, it did. Uh, it just revolutionised everything for me and I, I've had the most... Everything I wanted came to me in a sense, because I have been very ambitious, very long time. And I just wondered, why am I breaking through? Why aren't I breaking through? And then it happened with that prize. Overnight, literally everything I wanted started to come to me. And, and I was at a stage and age where I can handle it. You know, I'm 60, I've, I've written, uh, had that stage written eight books. I've been around in the arts for 40 years, from the age of 12, actually, in the arts. And so I've, I've been touring as a writer, talking as a writer, I, could, I have been able to totally handle the last two years and make the most of it. And as you said earlier, you know, use my platform to, to yeah. bring other people with me. And that's what we do now, right? that Ideally, it's not just about the individual. It's also about the communities that we belong to and that we feel are marginalised and so on. And so I can, I can only see it in a positive light. Well, I have, to, I have to be a bit quieter this year because in order to write another novel and the other project I'm involved in, I need, I need quiet time and so yes. I, I'll probably be less visible this year because I just need to get on with the work. But I, I didn't want to disappear um, after winning the Booker. I wanted to make the most of it, but that can't go on forever. And also people really get pissed off with me, so I'm going to sort of slip away quietly for a bit. <laughs> oh Well, I hope you come back on
0: and tell us about your new novel when you're able to, and I hope you yes. come on again lots and tell us more about what you're doing. It's been such... Yes, thank uh, you very much. Well, it's been an absolute honour. Thank you very much, Bendi.: It's been great fun. Thank you. Good to talk to you both. Before we go, we wanted to turn to the groundbreaking exhibition Hogarth in Europe that's been at Tate Britain for a while. If you haven't seen it yet there's still time to go as it's on until the 20th of March. Hogarth obviously needs little introduction as he's so well known for his satirical prints particularly the Rake's Progress and Marriage à la Mode*, and their portrayal of society's inequalities and injustices which still resonate today. But this exhibition goes much further because alongside Hogarth's work it's showing paintings by some of Hogarth's contemporaries across Europe including Chardin in Paris, Longhi in Venice and Troost in Amsterdam but what's really made the exhibition stand out and puts it at the centre of the culture wars is its accompanying commentary from a total of 18 assorted academics, historians and artists. With us today to tell us more about it is one of the two curators Alice Insley. Good morning
3: Alice. Good morning.
1: Good morning. I actually love the bold way that you've looked at Hogarth's works through a very contemporary lens uh asking a big panel of experts to interpret what we're seeing but the accompanying commentary is very very extensive but it hasn't been popular with some people uh it's obviously as charlotte said fallen slap bang in the middle of the culture wars and some people have described it dare i say it as woke yes (laughs) because some of the analysis invites viewers to look at the connections to slavery anti-semitism colonialism or sexism and rape that some critics have complained are actually quite Tenuous. One review said that several paintings are being treated like bombs about to explode and offend. <laughs> so I'd love to know, or rather, our listeners would love to know, how did you choose the commentators? How have the public, rather than the critics, reacted? And in fact, how did you come up with the idea of interpreting Hogarth in this way in the first place?
3: I guess the reason why we took this approach was because um, one of our ambitions with the show was to try and connect the artworks to this wider social history. And as we were thinking about um, Hogarth, who's normally seen as this very um, kind of true Brit almost, I think. Um, And, you know, he has made this really important contribution to British art. I think we then were thinking about his relationship to Europe. So recognising, I guess, that to talk about 18th century Europe is necessarily to talk about the about empire and slavery in particular. And, you know, London, for example, was this hugely cosmopolitan city with lots of opportunities, but also it was um, a centre for the slave trade. It's been quite a divisive show, but I hope, I mean, what it has done, which I think is really interesting, is open up a conversation around how we view the 18th century. um, And also I think about Perhaps what we expect when we go into an, an art gallery, what kind of experience we're hoping to find, uh, what kind of information we're hoping to see on captions, and I, th- I think there's quite a few questions that it's raised as well. So,
0: so um, you know, what I really loved about this exhibition was was discovering a a very sort of empathetic side of Hogarth, particularly in, in the in the portraits. You know, like the, one of his six servants. A lot of the criticism of the commentary has been that that. We're not allowed to revel in Hogarth's sort of exuberance and celebration of London in all its sort of complicated, dirty, crowded, corrupt glory because we're we're being asked to look at everything through such forbidding lens.
3: I think sometimes we often put a lens on historical figures that is perhaps more black and white, and that actually historical figures would have been just as contradictory as we are ourselves today, and so. Uh, I guess I see Hogarth in in that respect of an artist who, yeah, has that wonderful ability to convey humour and to tell stories and who shows, yeah, his servants in this wonderfully sensitive way. And I also love his portraits of his sisters so he has this real ability to be sympathetic I guess I think of him as an artist who was also embedded within the culture of the 18th century and that that also has troubling parts to it and that he was working for people whose wealth came from the slave trade in some instances um, or for people that were able to uh, had the kind of power to be able to withstand perhaps more unflattering but also quite funny representations as well.
1: What I find interesting about this whole criticism and the culture wars that we find ourselves in is, first of all, to put it bluntly, we'll probably have a Hogarth exhibition every 10 years until climate change destroys the world. So it's it's like putting on a Shakespeare play. You should have the freedom to try a new interpretation of Hogarth with every exhibition you put on. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the definitive view of Hogarth. And it lands squarely within the debate we're all having at the moment about uh, the culture war and slavery and uh, colonialism. And the other thing is obviously that It also falls in Brexit Britain. And I think this linking of Hogarth to Europe to explain that no artist is an island is also a very interesting element of the whole exhibition.
3: I think the thing is is that Hogarth is such a... Well, he's such a loved artist that I think there'll always be people who are keen to see him. I guess great artists are kind of reconsidered and re-evaluated for new generations. And so thinking about how... How Hogarth is relevant today and how his artwork might speak to contemporary debates. This idea of Hogarth as a European is is very long-standing really and actually goes back to scholarship from the kind of early 70s. So it's kind of an interesting point that it's become or gained this new resonance um, in the current political climate and in the aftermath of Brexit.
0: I absolutely love I, I really like the show. I just thought the the seeing those paintings close up was such a treat.
3: One of the treats for me has been, yeah, that close looking and seeing those juxtapositions that, you know, the the idea of comparing Chardin and Hogarth is not a new one. It's been done in kind of art historical literature, but we haven't done it side by side. Mm. And so it's really fascinating to see the similarities and the differences.
0: I really can't recommend it more highly to listeners. Whatever you think of the commentary, just go and look at the paintings themselves because they are totally glorious. Thank you very much for coming on and telling us about it and it's running till the 20th of March which is so there's still plenty
3: of time to go and see it.
1: Thanks so much Alice.
3: No problem, thanks for having me.
1: That's all we've got time for this week but do please keep listening and leaving comments or sending them and any suggestions to Charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk.
0: And don't forget that the new edition of Country and Townhouse is out now, available at selected newsagents and at Waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with the 2022 edition of great British brands. Thank you so much again to Coots, our sponsor. And do visit the website coots.com and discover if its bespoke borrowing solutions could help you achieve that balanced life we're all in search of. Though we do have to remind you that your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage. Credit is subject to status and fees may apply.
1: If you go to countryandtownhouse.co.uk, you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest. All the latest news on interiors from Carolynette and just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter and to the great British brands monthly one. Thank you all for listening and see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.